Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. If you were born in the 20th century, you were born in the most violent century in the history of the world. More people were murdered by fellow humans than any other hundred year period. There were civil wars in nations on almost every continent, two massive world wars, genocides of entire people groups, and advancement in weaponry like never before. Just some current statistics that may hit a little more closely to home. In our country, domestic abuse is rampant. Nearly 20 Americans are physically abused by their partner every minute. Over 300 people in our country are victims of gun violence every day. Politicians and leaders are constantly debating how to best address violence across our country, yet no one seems to be able to make any progress. Now, regardless of what you think about these particular issues, we can all agree that we live in a world that is filled with violence. Turn on the news. Pick up a newspaper. Violence is everywhere, and it's constant. If we are following Jesus in this world, how are we to think about this? What are we to do when we face violence ourselves? Well, you've probably guessed that Jesus has something to say about this. In fact, he has a lot to say about the violence in our world and how we are supposed to respond as his followers. We're currently going through a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives six examples of a law or a custom that the Jewish people lived by, and he reveals the heart behind the law that his followers are to live out. It follows the formula of you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now three of those six deal with violence. So think about this. Jesus gives six examples of a heart that reflects God's heart. One is about lust, about not using a person or their image to fuel your own sexual desire. Another is about protecting the covenantal commitment of marriage. A third is about not manipulating and deceiving people, but presenting yourself to others in an honest and authentic way. We talked about this in the last episode. And, and then the remaining three, Jesus calls his followers to a radical rejection of violence. It would seem as though Jesus believes that breaking the cycle of violence in the world is an integral part to his kingdom. Preston Sprinkle, in his book uh, called Nonviolence, writes this. He says, the central feature of Jesus's unkingdom-like 
kingdom is when all other kingdoms of the world are advancing with force and violence, Jesus will erect the kingdom of peace without violence. So just like you and just like me, Jesus was born into a violent world. And this teaching that he's giving here has everyday implications for his followers. This wasn't just some nice sentiment for people who never actually had to face real violence. For the people that Jesus was speaking to, taking this seriously had big consequences. And as far as we can tell, the early followers of Jesus all took this teaching very seriously. So let's dive in and take a look at this uh, verse by verse. In verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, maybe you are up on your Old Testament law trivia, but if you are like me, you, you probably read this and thought, does the Bible really say that? And, and yes, it does. There, there's an, a few times that the Bible says this, but I'll give you a couple examples. One is in Exodus 21. There is a list of examples of what what you are to do if someone is using violence against someone else. And then Exodus 21 says, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24 Verses 17 through 20 echoes this. It says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now we hear this and we probably think, man, that sounds a little barbaric. But just think for a minute, if someone out of nowhere walks up to you and hits you, what is typically the first instinct for many? It's to hit them back, right? What if someone cuts you off on the road? What do you do? Well, you speed up real fast and you cut them off or you ride up real close behind them so that they know that, that they wronged you, that they inconvenienced you, that, that they were in the wrong? Or what if your spouse makes a little comment about how you never clean your dishes? What's your typical response? Something like, well, you never pick up your socks off the floor or something like that. We all have this tendency to retaliate when we are wronged. We want to get even. We want revenge. We feel that it is our right. After all, that person hurt you first. They should at least be hurt in the same way. This is how we often think. So this Old Testament law, the law of retaliation, or or in Latin it's called lex talionis, and it still exists in legal philosophy today, it was actually intended to curb that retaliatory instinct. Here's just a couple things that we need to understand about this. Number one, this was intended to be upheld in the local courts. 
Okay, so it wasn't vigilante justice. This wasn't one neighbor, um, you know, you get poked in the eye, so that neighbor pokes you in the eye. Instead, the leaders of the community, similar to judges, were handing down this punishment to someone who had broken the law. So this was, this was to be upheld by the leaders of the community in the local courts. The second thing to understand is that this was a relatively progressive law at the time because it was supposed to be evenly enforced across social classes. So if you looked at neighboring cultures like the Babylonians or the Assyrians, they might have something similar, but only for wealthy uh, landowning males, okay? Women, foreigners, the poor, they, were, they would be subject to far more severe punishment, and a wealthy male might face no punishment at all if they harm someone of lower status. So essentially, this was intended to make sure that the punishment fits the crime, regardless of social status of the perpetrator or the victim. And we can all get behind that, that the punishment should fit the crime. But Jesus enters in and he presents a new way for his followers to respond to violence. One that doesn't simply hold violence at bay, but actually attempts to put an end to the cycle of violence entirely. So let's continue on. Verse 39, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, I'm reading the NIV translation today. Maybe your translation says something a little bit different. Uh, in general, um, the NIV is a great translation. Unfortunately, this particular line is just a bad translation of, of what Jesus is trying to say here. And there's some reasons for that. Um, it's kind of a carryover from the King James Version days, um, which was translated a long, long time ago before we made a bunch of discoveries and advancements in how we read ancient texts. And this has just kind of, of been passed down um, through the translations. But if you check out some of the uh, Greek scholars, you would see that they largely agree that this should not be translated as do not resist. Okay, the Greek word there instead uh, should be translated as do not use violence to resist. Okay, or one scholar, I like this translation, it says, do not retaliate revengefully against evil or against an evil person. Because here's the key, no one resisted evil more than Jesus. Okay, and he wants his followers to resist evil. He wants us to resist the evil in the world. His concern is with how we resist evil. Okay, he says, don't retaliate with more violence. Don't respond to evil with more evil. But he also doesn't want us to, to just flee or retreat or roll over or just take it, right? Instead, he offers a new way of resisting violence and evil that aims to make peace and put an end to the cycle of retaliation. So he continues on. He gives us four examples of how these are you know, somewhat of everyday examples of how his followers are to resist evil and violence without retaliating with more evil and more violence. So we see here the first example, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So I think we need to put this into our modern context. Imagine uh, Will Smith walks up to you, right? And, and he goes to slap you. Now in Jesus's day, 
Um, even if you were born left-handed, you would be forced to use uh, your right hand. Okay, so there's no left-handed adults. Okay, as a kid, if you use your left hand, um, they'd tie it behind your back, whatever they had to do to make sure you used your right hand. So everyone's right-handed. And if you can picture, picture this uh, for a minute, how would you, or how would someone who is right-handed slap your right cheek with their right hand? It's a backhanded slap, right? They would have to do it with the back of their hand. So what Jesus is talking about here is a backhanded slap. It's not only violent, but it is dehumanizing. It is degrading. It is a sign that that person sees you as less than human if they backhanded slap you. So if this were to happen to you, what are your options? Well, one, you could fight back right? You could slap them. You could backhand them. And and this would likely escalate into a full-blown fight. The second option would be to flee the conflict, right? Cower from them or run away or or whatever you got to do to get away from the conflict. But Jesus, he doesn't say to do either of those things, right? He offers a different response. He tells his followers, don't respond with more violence, but don't flee either. Instead, turn to them your other cheek. Okay, and what what you're doing there is you are saying to them, listen, you can hit me again if you'd like, but if you do, you're going to have to punch me. Okay, I'm not going to let you backhanded slap me. If you're going to hit me, you're going to have to hit my left cheek and you're going to have to punch me or slap me with an open hand. So what you're doing is is you are responding Uh, without responding in violence, without degrading their humanity by returning their backhanded slap with another backhanded slap, you are, uh, in a sense, reclaiming your own dignity and saying, I don't deserve to be treated that way, and I'm not going to let you hit me like I am less than human. Okay, now, what, what might happen, right? Two things could happen here. One, they might punch you, and it would would hurt possibly more than the slap, right? Or your response to to not hit them back, to not cower away in fear, it might cause them to recognize that they treated you in a way that is dehumanizing, that is degrading, that is not fit for a fellow neighbor, a fellow image bearer of God. And because you didn't respond in kind, because you didn't escalate the violence with retaliation, there is an opportunity for reconciliation. It doesn't guarantee it, but it opens the door for them to reconcile. So that's example number one. Example number two, Jesus says in verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So in this example, you are in a courtroom, you are being sued, and for whatever reason, this person who is suing you wants to take everything you own down to the very clothes on your back. Now, the typical Jewish man at the time would be wearing two items of clothing, an inner garment, translated here as shirt, and an outer garment or a robe, translated here as coat. And unless you were very wealthy, the two items that you had on were likely the only items you owned. And, and because of that, it would, was actually illegal in Jewish courts to, to take someone's coat. 
that you could take their shirt from them, but you can't take their coat, that outer garment, because otherwise they'd have nothing. So you're in a courtroom and you're being sued for everything, including the shirt off your back. What are your options? Well, one, you could fight back, right? You could get your own lawyer who not only defends you, but then you sue that person in return and you go after everything he owns. Or two, you could give in. Just just give in and give him your shirt and walk away angry, bitter, uh, with nothing but your robe. Okay, you just let him sue you. But Jesus gives a third option. Instead of allowing him to sue you, you willingly give him everything. And, and you, you give him more than he is suing you for. You give him your cloak as well. And if you do the math, you got two items of clothing minus two items of clothing. This leaves you standing naked in the middle of the courtroom. But not because the man sued you and won, but because you willingly gave it all to him. Now, what might happen? Okay, this is a, this is a pretty outrageous response. And you're standing there uh, just completely naked in a courtroom, but not because someone stripped you naked and, and degraded you and dehumanized you yourself. You chose to be this way. And so two things might happen. He might take it all. He might take everything from you and, and you'd be left standing there naked with nothing. Or another thing might happen. Your response might expose the outrageousness of his greed and he might be compelled to reconcile with you. He might be compelled to show show grace and not sue you for everything you have. It's not guaranteed, but it opens the door for reconciliation. Because you didn't respond by fighting back and you didn't respond by fleeing the conflict. The third example Jesus gives here in verse 41, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with them two miles. So you're a Jew and you're living under the authority of the Roman Empire in the first century. So by law, if a Roman tells you to carry his pack somewhere, you would have to stop whatever it is you were doing and obey. Okay, you might be headed to work. You might be going on a date with your wife, going to pick up your kids. It didn't matter. A soldier could stop you and demand that you carry his stuff for him. Okay, in a situation like this, what are your options? One, you could refuse. You could fight back. You could go join the Zealots, which is a Jewish revolutionary group, and start assassinating Romans. That's your first option. Your second option is you could roll over and submit and just begrudgingly carry the man's pack and allow the anger and hate and the hopelessness of of being under oppression just fester within you and destroy you from the inside out. Or you take Jesus's third option and you don't just do what the man has asked, but instead you show him radical love. You go above and beyond what he has asked of you and you blessed him. Okay. He can force you to go a mile with him, but now you are taking back authority over your own body and you are choosing to go a second mile with him. In doing so, what you, you are doing is you're taking back your own dignity. Okay. You're no longer the oppressor, but you are the blesser. You are blessing this man who is your enemy, who is trying to take advantage of you and use you. And who knows, um, maybe during that second mile, his heart would soften and your, your 
radical act of love uh, might cause him to open up to you. Maybe you could hear his story. Maybe you would humanize both him and yourself and, and open the door to relationship, breaking the chain of repression and, and violence and possibly open the door towards reconciliation and mutual understanding, right? Now, we don't know if the soldier would respond in that way, but it gives the opportunity for that, which uh, if you were to fight back or if you were to flee and just or just begrudgingly give in and 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 treat him with with anger and hate, um, it would not open the door for that. Okay, so Jesus is saying by taking this third option, this creative, nonviolent, non-retaliatory resistance to evil, you are opening the door to reconciliation and relationship. Finally, the last example in verse 42. Jesus says to give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This example is a little bit different than the first three. In the first three, you are the one being oppressed or you are being wronged, but now someone who is in need is coming to you and asking for help. Okay, maybe it's someone who's asking for money on the street or maybe it's a neighbor who's in a bind and and really needs some help. In a case like this, you have, again, a couple options. You could, of course, refuse the requests. Okay, tell them they're not your responsibility. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, take care of it yourself. Or a second option would be to just sort of give in and, and give them whatever they ask for and, and do it only to avoid the awkwardness of, of saying no and just be done with it, right? Like, you just give them what you ask for and you walk away. But once again, Jesus presents a third option. He says you don't refuse to give to them, but you also don't just begrudgingly give in either and then go your own way. Jesus says instead, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Instead, come alongside them in relationship. Okay, walk with them. You you not only meet their immediate need, but you can help them find a way forward. And maybe someday they'll be in a place where They could help you or someone else who's in a moment of need. So it creates this relationship that might lead towards towards fruitfulness, not just getting through this moment of need. So Jesus once again gives us a creative third option that resists the urge to fight or flee and makes space for healing, wholeness, and reconciliation. None of these responses guarantee that because it's a two-way street. And people need to respond. We can't force anyone to do anything, but we open the door towards that in ways that responding with violence or retaliating towards towards wrongdoing uh, does not do. Okay, Jesus presents this non-retaliatory, non-violent resistance to evil that opens the door towards reconciliation and peace. So for Jesus, every interaction, every conflict is an opportunity to show radical kingdom love. For Jesus, it is not enough for his followers just to avoid evil or avoid violence or just refrain from doing wrong. Instead, he calls us to be actively confronting the evil that is around us and constantly cultivating peace, love, and reconciliation. Jesus knows that the old way of dealing with violence, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, 
will at best hold violence at bay, and at worst, it escalates the, viol- the cycle of violence through intensifying acts of retaliation. So he offers a new creative way to, for his followers to confront violence and evil in the world. John Howard Yoder is a uh, professor from Duke University, and he wrote the book Politics of Jesus. He writes, what is wrong with the world is most fundamentally that people respond to evil with evil and thereby aggravate the spiral of violence. The tendency towards retaliation intends to preserve human society from chaos, but in reality, it guarantees at best a continuing chain of evil. At worst, it escalates it, like pouring oil on fire. By refusing to extend the chain of vengeance, we break into the world with the good news, end quote. When we feel that we are wronged, whether it's a punch to the face or a verbal insult or being cut off on the expressway, whatever it is, at the core of that wrongdoing, we have this sense that our dignity has been taken from us, that our humanity has been offended right? That we, we have been treated in a way that we did not deserve. So if we imagine we are on level ground with this person who has wronged us, when they wrong us, we have this feeling inside of us that we have been knocked down a peg, okay? We are now beneath them, at least in the way that they've treated us. And our tendency, instead of, instead of reclaiming our own dignity and, and moving back up to that even ground, or, or instead of reminding ourselves that we are not actually defined by how someone treats you, instead our tendency is to, to harm the dignity of the one who wronged us in, in order to even the score and knock them down to the level that they put us at. But Jesus says, we, we should not be robbing people of their dignity regardless of what they do to us. We should not be taking someone or treating someone as if they are lesser than what they were created to be simply because they've wronged us. Instead, we can show them that we are to be treated as a fellow human being by responding with love and kindness and treating them the way they ought to be treated. And in doing so, we reclaim our own dignity and hopefully open the door towards reconciliation. So Jesus calls his followers not to retaliate in the face of evil. All you're doing is intensifying the issue. Instead, Jesus calls us to find creative, nonviolent ways to resist that evil. And while doing that, you not only reclaim your own dignity, but you respect the dignity and the humanity of the other, the one who wronged you, and you open the door towards peace and reconciliation. Just imagine for a moment if everyone who claimed to follow Jesus lived this way. Imagine if all the people who lived in Knoxville, right, who claimed to be Christians, who claimed to follow Jesus, imagine if they all lived this way. How different would our marriages be? How different would it be on on I-40, right, or on the road as we're driving around? How different would it be in our churches if we didn't respond to wrongdoing or being harmed with retaliation? 
I mean, let's look at the bigger picture. In World War I, we had Christian nation or predominantly Christian nation fighting against predominantly Christian nations. Imagine if the Christians across the world identified more by their citizenship in God's kingdom rather than their earthly kingdom, that wherever they lived, and refused to fight, refused to kill others. Imagine what would have happened and how the story would have been different. Or in World War II, in Germany, where it was predominantly Christian and the vast majority of Hitler's army were Christian men, what would happen if all the German Christians during that time had refused to fight for the Nazi army? What would have happened? Well, certainly some of them would have been killed and some of them would have lost their lives. Absolutely, that is, that would have happened. But it would have been a much different story. A much different story. Now, I know this brings up hundreds of really practical and really important questions. And there are a lot of great resources um, that we talked about in our, in our uh, all-family gathering um, that would help you process through some of those things. So what I would say is you are, if you are part of our Commonwealth family and you want to process this more, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to grab coffee and talk through some of the real practical questions um, when it comes to this. And there's no easy answers to it. There really isn't. Um, but I mentioned a few books, uh, Preston Sprinkle's book, Nonviolence. He dives into a biblical theology of, of this sort of response to evil. It's really helpful. He also has a podcast that you can take a look at. Um, Bridgetown Church did a series of interviews on people that are trying to live this out, and I'm happy to share that with you. Um, but more importantly than that, um, I want you to just go to Jesus and ask him to reveal to you how would he respond in the everyday situations of life where you feel that you are wronged where you feel that your dignity is taken from you. And, and ask him to empower you, to, to give you the ability to live in a radical way that reflects him in the way that he responded in the face of violence and oppression. And then I would say, um, go to the cross. Go to the cross and reflect on Jesus's greatest act of nonviolent resistance to evil. Reflect on how he willingly went to the cross himself and overcame death and evil. We can only live out the implications of this passage because Jesus has done it before us. And any evil that we face has no power against the work that Jesus has done through his death and resurrection and continues to do as he leads us forward towards the renewed heaven and earth. So let me pray for you and then we'll close for today. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your word made flesh in the person of Jesus and how we get to look and study and reflect on the life of, of the, the divine man that walked this earth and that lived a very hard life and, and faced a lot of oppression and poverty and pain. Yet he did it with an amazing amount of love and grace, Father. So I, I just thank you that we get to look at Jesus every day and that we get to consider what does it look like to follow in his steps and to be identified with him.
as his disciples. I pray for anyone who's listening to this right now, God, that they would truly ponder what does it look like for them to live out these words of Jesus? What does it look like to not respond to evil or wrongdoing with more evil and more wrongdoing, but instead respond to it with love and grace and and peace and opening the door to reconciliation with your neighbor? I pray that Christians all over the world would be known for our radical response. In Jesus' name, amen.